Hear the scripture from John 5. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father Father has sent me. And thanks, Ryan. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we come to you in prayer once again, and we just praise you and thank you for who you are, and thank you for your word that we just heard read aloud. Um, we give you this time as we turn our hearts to your word. We, we ask that you would teach us uh, as we study it, as we read it together, as we seek to understand it. Would you help us uh, by the power of your spirit, help us to discern and understand what you are saying, and apply it to our lives. So we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. and just want to say welcome. I'm so glad that you're with us and so grateful. I'll just echo what Lee said for our VBS volunteer team. It's going to be such a special work. And really, uh, as I think about kind of the highlights of the church year. It's usually things like VBS, like Bethlehem, because there's so many people from the church involved in it. We get to serve together and have all kinds of fun, so thank you to our volunteer team. And hey, just one more update before we jump in. Um, as you know, the last year, with or over a year now with COVID and everything, has meant a lot of changing regulations and expectations and plans. And so I first just want to thank you all for your patience and your grace as we have navigated that as a church family, right? It hasn't been easy. There have been difficult seasons, and I know a lot of different, you know, opinions about how to navigate such a time. So thank you for your patience and understanding. Uh, along the way, our church has tried to just really honor the local authorities, local health officials, and kind of just keep in step with what uh, the government is saying and honor them. And so, as you know, uh, in California, some big changes are coming on the 15th, right? June 15th, a lot of uh, requirements and uh, expectations with COVID regulations are changing. And so, as a church family, in light of that, we're going to shift and, and stay in step with the, uh, the recommendations and requirements from the government, which means starting next Sunday, uh, we are going to do two things differently. One, we're not going to require or ask you guys to do any sort of RSVP system. Okay, so right now we've been RSVP. Some of you are like, I haven't been RSVPing for weeks. Um, that's okay. We love you. Um, but yeah, we're just going to do away with the RSVP system because one, in each service we've, we've had plenty of room. And again, the kind of capacity limits and requirements aren't really going to be as much of a thing anymore. So no longer RSVP needed. And the second thing will be, um, as the CDC has said, uh, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask indoors. Okay, it's good. Be mask-free. Starting next Sunday, yeah, that's, that's going to be good. Um, we're looking forward to that. So again, thank you for your patience. We'll send out an email reminder just to remind you guys of, of those changes coming up, but we're looking forward to that. All right, 
with that, hey, John chapter 5, we just heard starting in verse 30, read aloud, so you can find me, or find uh, the text there, join me there. Um, this is our last week in chapter 5, and so next week, here's the deal, we're starting a series within a series called Provider and Provision, okay? So as you know, we've been in this series through the Gospel of John just like a little bit at a time for a few months now. We're wrapping up chapter 5, and next week we're starting about a five-week series in chapter 6, which is kind of, it has its own theme and own focus, uh, Provider and Provision, looking at Jesus and how he is both provider and Provision. It, it has passages like the feeding of the 5,000 and like uh, when the people come searching for him and are asking for bread. He says, I'm the bread of life, so we're going to unpack that and we're going to make you all hungry right before lunch, talking a lot about bread and food and hunger, deep hunger, things like that. So that all begins next week. But this week we're still in chapter 5. And hey, here's the deal. We all love a good courtroom drama, right? Whether you uh, read it in a book, watch a movie, TV shows that take you into a tense trial, right? And you see lawyers working their tactics. You see witnesses called to the stand, given their testimony. You see people trying to sway the jury and the judge. Think of movies like Just Mercy. You saw Just Mercy came out a few years ago. That was a really good courtroom drama. You think about uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Did anyone see that miniseries recently? Okay, a couple people, thank you. That was pretty tense. Liar, liar even brought us into the courtroom, if you remember that. Or my favorite, my favorite, A Few Good Men, right? Classic, you can't handle the truth. I try to quote that up here from time to time, so I got my A Few Good Men men reference quota met for this morning. Um, But you know the deal. So as we read through the Gospel of John, the reason we're talking about this is because so often in the Gospel of John, it has a... Uh, courtroom sort of feel. There's this uh, trial theme that's kind of run throughout the gospel where we see John, the author, presenting for us evidence about why we should believe Jesus. Witnesses are uh, sharing their testimony. Signs and arguments are presented. And all of it is essentially making the case for, hey, here's who Jesus is, and here's why you should believe in him, and here's what that means for your life. So we see that through Jesus, the book. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at these kind of big claims that Jesus was making, right? He was saying uh, that he's equal with God the Father. He was claiming to have the authority to raise the dead, to give life, to be the judge of all the earth, like claiming that your eternity is dependent upon how you respond to him. Massive claims. Okay, and so the people listening... The people in the ancient world reading the Gospel of John and, and us today naturally then ask the question, is that true? Like, is Jesus who he says he is? Because these are some massive claims. And if so, how do we know? And so Jesus continues, and as you saw in the text, he basically says, hey, I'm making these claims, but don't just take my word for it. I'm going to bring up some other witnesses to testify about who I am, right? Verse 31, he said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor. Okay, verse 31, he's not saying, like, hey, I'm misleading you, I'm, I'm lying to you. But he's saying, hey, if I'm the only one making these claims, 
if I'm kind of out here on an island making these claims and, and no one else or nothing else testifies that, that what I'm saying is true, then you'd have reason to, to throw out what I'm saying. Right? If I'm just kind of a, a wild guy out here saying random things. But if there's a, a bunch of witnesses all testifying that what I say is true, then that's a different story. And he says there actually there are more witnesses. And see, in the ancient Jewish world, when there was a trial, two witnesses at least were necessary to prove a case. And more than just one witness was required. And so Jesus is playing into that and saying, hey, don't just take my word for it. I'm going to call some witnesses to the stand, and they're going to tell you about who I am. Okay? So first witness to the stand, verse 33. See what he says. He said, you sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to call my first witness, and first witness is John the Baptist. Remember our friend John, chapter 1, the one we affectionately call JTB, right? Our boy JTB comes on the scene in chapter 1, and he, he's telling people about Jesus. And do you remember what he says? He says, hey, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the one you've been waiting for, but my job is to point you to that guy, right? My job is to tell you to get ready, because he's coming, prepare the way. And then a few verses later in chapter 1, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is saying to his audience, to his uh, challengers, saying, hey, remember John? He told you about me. Verse 35 says John was a lamp. He gave light. And he's saying, hey, you enjoyed his light for a time. There was this anticipation, this buildup, this expectation with the ministry of John the Baptist. Something big was coming. Something big was about to happen. And so Jesus is saying, hey, witness number one, John the Baptist, he was telling you about me. Now I know for maybe a modern audience, um, hearing the testimony of John the Baptist maybe doesn't mean a whole lot, right? For the original audience, they knew about John the Baptist. They knew about his ministry, his calls for repentance. But for us today, we're like, that kind of sounds a bit far off and a bit ancient. I'm not sure how much that does for me if you're, you know, a skeptic and on the fence and trying to evaluate this. And so maybe a, a modern parallel that could help us today, if you're in that place, would be to see uh, the ordinary Christians in your life sort of fulfilling this role of John the Baptist, right? What did John the Baptist do? He said, hey, get ready, prepare the way. He, he was a lamp pointing people to Jesus. And so in the same way, Christians today will point others to Jesus, right? Think about in your life, the people who have helped you come to know Jesus, or maybe you're not a Christian, but Christians in your life have maybe told you about Jesus, or you've, you've kind of watched them and seen their life and maybe seen something different about them. Maybe a parent, a, a co-worker, a, a friend, a, a family member, uh, someone you met on the street. I, I don't know who's modeled for you what it means to follow Jesus. They've been a witness, right? They've given their testimony by their word and by their life. And so hopefully... Again, if you're not a Christian, hopefully you've been able to maybe look at Christians that you know and say, wow, there's, there's something about them. There, there's a certain maybe a, a joy or a, a peace in their life that I admire 
or that I maybe kind of wish that I had, or there's a love that they have for other people, and I, I really respect that, or I really kind of want to be more like that. Maybe you've seen, hopefully, generosity lived out, or hopefully you've seen sacrificial love lived out. You've seen their witness. And so it's a reminder for us as Christians that, that we have a part to play in being witnesses, right? Acts chapter 1 says, well, we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. So now, in, in a way, the, all believers now are kind of fulfilling that role of John the Baptist, of saying, hey, prepare the way. The king is coming and pointing people to him. Now, again, I, I don't say that to to obscure the role of John the Baptist or the unique role that John the Baptist played in history and in Scripture. So that is, you know, unique and important. But just saying maybe a modern-day parallel could be the way that we live our lives and point people to Jesus. Second witness to the stand, verse 36. He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Okay, so first, first witness, John the Baptist. But then he's basically saying, hey, if you weren't convinced by John the Baptist, just hold on, just wait. I have weightier testimony. The works that the Father has given me to finish, they testify about me. So Jesus says, hey, witness number two is my works. We think then about what he's been doing. What's Jesus been up to? Oh, nothing much, just turning water into wine, healing people healing the man at Bethesda who was paralyzed for 38 years, helping him walk again. Or right around the corner, he's going to you know, feed the crowd of 5,000 with a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. He's going to feed the crowd. He's going to walk on water. Later, he's going to raise his dead friend Lazarus up from the dead. So we see these, these miracles. And then, of course, we ultimately see the, uh, his death on the cross and his resurrection, right? The ultimate miracle and validation and affirmation of his identity as Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, hey, my works, my miracles, the things that I'm doing, they're revealing who I am. They're showing my power to heal, my power to give life. They're showing my, my authority over even the natural world. My power to cleanse. And so these works, especially the, the resurrection, stand out so much because these aren't just the sorts of things that ordinary people do, right? It's not like, you know, oh, walking on water. Cool, Jesus, but my neighbor just took a class down the street and learned how to walk on water. So, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. No, we'd say, my goodness, healing and walking on water and water into wine and his resurrection and raising. I mean, these are incredible, unique, unparalleled acts. And so when we come to Scripture, we see them. And we're amazed when we see them. And it reminds us who Jesus is. And for some of us, it's, it's uh, maybe easier to buy into. We, we believe that. We, we read it, we say, yes, Jesus did that. I don't have a problem with that. But, but other uh, people, maybe some of us here in this room, we, we see the miracles and we're like, wait a second, that's kind of hard to wrap my head around, right? We're modern you know, educated people in the in 21st century, the age of the Enlightenment, 2021 here, and so we, we don't buy into miracles, okay? So some of us maybe are coming from that place where we have a hard time believing these things. And we would say maybe that, hey, science has proven that there are no miracles or there can't be miracles. And if, if that's you, you're coming from that 
place, I just would like to uh, present the fact that there are various scientists and scholars and thinkers that, that push back on that modern assumption. And to actually know the existence of miracles and the things that we read about in the Gospels are not in contradiction with, with science or with a robust intellectual life. And they'll say, uh, hey, science is an incredible tool. Right? Science is an incredible tool that's given many gifts to the modern world. We can celebrate that. But we realize that science is only equipped to tell us so much. Right? There are certain sorts of, of questions that science can answer. Science observes the natural world, uh, makes predictions, tests based on that, looking for natural causes. And so science is not designed to tell us about the possibility of supernatural causes. And that's not how science works. That's not how uh, science functions. And so if we say that, well, miracles couldn't happen or Jesus' works couldn't be real because of science, uh, we would have to, to point out that that's not necessarily a consistent or logical conclusion. Right? There are many uh, people of faith who believe in the scriptures and believe that Jesus really did do these miracles and are also scientists and scholars and in the academic world and brilliant minds and professors that affirm, hey, science is a gift, we acknowledge that, but there are also some questions that science can't answer. And so I say all of that simply to say that if we approach the scriptures and just like upfront categorically rule out the possibility of miracles, that's not a scientific claim, or that's not a, a claim backed by science, that's actually a philosophical claim, a, a belief about the way the world works. So I, I, I would encourage us to come uh, open-handed to the text and believe that these, these miracles are possible and, and, and did happen, and they show us who Jesus is. So Jesus says, hey, John the Baptist told you about me. My works are showing who I am. Third witness to the stand, verse 37, me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So Jesus has kind of some harsh words for his opponents here, saying, hey, even though you haven't believed it or received it, God the Father himself has testified about me and, and told you who I am. Now there's some debate about like what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about like an event, like at his baptism, remember where the clouds open up and we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Some scholars will say it's probably talking about that or, or maybe uh, God's word in scripture. In general, we look at the Old Testament and we see uh, how God the Father prepares us to see Jesus, his son, to come. Uh, some people would say maybe that's what it's about. Um, but it seems best to see this as just like a general reference, including the testimony of Scripture and Jesus' baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him, uh, just pointing to his unity with the Father. Remember we talked about that last, uh, last week a lot? Jesus isn't like out here doing his own thing separate from the Father, but he's saying how perfectly unified he is with the Father to honor one is to honor the other, to reject one, is to reject the other. And so Jesus is saying, hey, in, in various ways, my father has testified that I'm his son, doing his will, and that I am who I say I am. 
fourth witness to the stand. Verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See that word testify again, right? So he's saying, hey, John the Baptist talked about me. And my works are testifying about me. The Father himself testifies about me. Now verse 39. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So he's talking about the the Old Testament. It all is pointing you to me. Now we're going to talk in a minute about the really tragic irony that these uh, religious leaders that are opposing Jesus, they knew the Old Testament scriptures really well. Jesus himself said, hey, they studied them diligently, and yet they still missed the point, right? They still missed what it was all about, which is what, coming to Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But notice first what, what Jesus is saying about the scriptures, about the Old Testament. He's saying, they testify about me. We have to ask the question, what is the Old Testament really about? What's, what is the Bible ultimately about? If we don't understand this point Jesus is making here, we are going to misunderstand the Bible. We will misinterpret, misapply the Bible, we'll really miss the heart of what it is all about. Jesus is saying the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Bible, it's all about me. It testifies about me. This means, think about it, this means when we come to the Bible, whether it's an Old Testament passage or a New Testament passage, we should be asking the question, in what way does this point us to Jesus? If Jesus says that the scriptures testify about who he is, then in what way does this passage that I'm reading, whatever that passage might be, point me to Jesus? Okay, there are a few ways the Old Testament does this. One would be like direct uh, prophecy or prediction, right? Those passages that talk about there will be a coming Messiah, a coming Savior that we're waiting for. We think of passages like Isaiah 53, talking about a suffering servant who would die for the sins of his people. Or we think about Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, where it was promised that one would come and crush the head of the serpent. Or we think about uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it talks about a king will come from the line of David and rule with all authority forever. And we say, well, those are prophecy, prediction, pointing about this, this future Messiah who will come. So we say, hey, in that way, those passages point us to Jesus. But the scriptures have more ways than just that of pointing us to Jesus, okay? So in some ways, we'll read the Old Testament, and we'll read passages that really prepare us to encounter Jesus. They, they tell us things like, um, they show us our need, right? Or we see, you read through the Old Testament, you see, so much brokenness, so much violence, so much sin. And those things are in there and they show us just this cycle of humanity and depravity and how we uh, kill one another and disobey God and run the opposite direction. And even though he keeps pursuing us, we keep running the opposite way. And so it just over and over again prepares us by saying, hey, you, you need a savior. Like humanity really needs help from the outside because we keep getting it horribly wrong, okay? So we read through the Old Testament. It prepares us for Christ. Okay, that, that testifies about me, Jesus is saying, and my, my work and what I came to do, you see? Or the Old Testament gives us images like 
the crossing of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus to help us understand what salvation is like, going from slavery to freedom by the power of God. Or it gives us uh, things like the Levitical uh, sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. All these sacrifices and the blood and the animals reminds us of the consequences of sin and this way that God has set things up so that sin can be forgiven by the blood of a lamb. So it prepares us to see Jesus. And there's a number of other ways that the Old Testament does this. But the point I'm trying to make here is that even in passages where it doesn't specifically talk about, hey, there's a Messiah that's going to come, the scriptures reveal the heart of God, reveal our need, reveal that God has to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we see that all of that is pointing us to Jesus. And here's, here's the reason I mention this. And here's the reason we really got to drill down on this is that's not usually the way we approach the Bible today. I think for, for many of us, we approach the Bible and we don't say, hey, in what way is this pointing me to Jesus or testifying about him? Often what we'll do is we'll say, hey, this, this book is it's a list of like do's and don'ts or it's a list of good advice about how to live a, a godly, skillful life. Right? It's some, here's some tips and tricks to improve your marriage and improve you know, your work life. And here's some, some good advice. Here's some moralism. Right? Like, be a good person. Don't be a bad person. God will be happy with you. And that's kind of what we think. You know, if we boiled this down, that's really what this book is about. And we kind of approach it how Brian Chappell, scholar and pastor, uh, refers to the deadly bees. And we say, we look at the Bible and we see the deadly bees, which are like, be like, uh, be like Moses. Like, look at his example. Be like him. Be like David. He was brave, except the whole Bathsheba thing. Not that part, but the rest, you know, be like David. Or, or be like uh, Daniel who trusted God. Or be like, we look at these figures and we say, oh, they're setting a moral example. We take, you know, a nugget of moral truth from their story and we apply it to our lives. And that's what we think it's about. Or we say, uh, not just be like, but uh, be good, right? Here's this list of things to do or don't do, so be good. Be like these people. Uh, be good. Don't do the bad stuff. Here's these sins you should avoid. Or we say, hey, be disciplined. You know, be uh, a godly person. Work in these spiritual rhythms into your life. Be disciplined like Jesus. He got up and prayed early, so you go pray early, right? So, so be like, be good, be disciplined. And as you hear those things, some of those things are, are true, Right? Like, those aren't necessarily false. Uh, Chapel will explain that the B messages are not uh, wrong in themselves, but they're wrong by themselves. Okay, so we can take that truth and say, oh yeah, David was brave with Goliath, and so that's a helpful tool. But there's more to the story, right? That's not all that it's about, is simply some moralism to go and apply to your life. So let me give you just one extended example to help make this point. Hopefully this is clear. So David and Goliath. Our boy David. Shepherd boy David. Most of us know the story, right? Big, scary Goliath. Uh, little shepherd boy David. He wasn't even part of the military, right? He just came and brought a care package from dad for his brothers. Like, here's some sandwiches and uh, hope the battle goes well. But everybody's what? Everybody's afraid to go and fight Goliath, right? The whole uh, Israelite army, they're like, we don't want to fight that guy. We're going to die. He's going to kill us. And so no one will. And David's like, What's wrong with you guys? Let's go, let's go fight him. And so David goes out with his little you know, slingshot and throws a rock and hits Goliath. And D Goliath dies. And woo, victory. They all win. Bad guys run away. Right? Remember the story? Okay. And so we approach that story and we have to ask, what is that story really about? 
Right? What, what's, what's the application to your life from that story? Yes, we have the historical event, and it tells us about that and what God was doing there, but what's the application to your life? A lot of us, again, we'll say, well, go be like David, right? You got your Goliath out there, this big scary thing you're facing, and so be like David. Be brave. Step out. Be strong. God's with you. Go conquer your Goliath just like David did. Go be like David, right? Have you heard that concept? Again, we can look at that and say, well, it's not necessarily wrong, right? We, we can take courage from David's example and want to be like David. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but is that really what the passage is about? Because if it is, it doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus, right? It's just, hey, it's about you and what you have to go do. So, so if the scriptures testify about Jesus and point us to him, then in what way could that story point us to Jesus? We, we could look an event, at an event like this and say, it's not really about you and what you have to go, but instead, what if you were like the Israelites who were scared and didn't want to fight and couldn't fight the battle yourself, and so you needed someone to come and fight for you? You needed someone to come and win the battle that you couldn't win. You needed a hero. You needed a rescuer, and it wasn't you. You need someone to come, fight Goliath, bring victory and freedom for you and for the people. And oh, by the way, you have one such person in Jesus. He is the one who came. And he fought the battle that we couldn't fight. And he killed the, the, the greater, truer Goliath of our sin and death and the devil. Jesus came and conquered. Jesus came and brought freedom for us. Jesus won the battle. He's the hero, right? And so the story of David and Goliath, it's not about us and what we have to do, but it's about what Christ has done. You see him fulfilling that arc, that story. And so as we start to read the Old Testament that way, it changes it. And it's not just like, oh, here's the things I have to go and do, but look what God has done in Christ. So Jesus says the scriptures testify about me. He calls his witnesses, John the Baptist, his works, the Father himself, the scriptures. He's saying, hey, it all is pointing to me and who I am and what I have done. But he's going to say, hey, there's some, some people who aren't going to believe that message. There's going to be some barriers to people believing and coming to me. Look at verse 39. Again, we saw this before. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Let me skip down to verse 45. Do not think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so again, he's pointing to, again, this basic understanding of like, hey, the Old Testament, Moses, his writings point to me. Right? He reinforces that. But then he's saying, hey, you are not coming to me to have life, believing what he said. And so here's the first barrier to belief. The first thing that kind of gets in the way is uh, Bible knowledge without relationship with Jesus. And there's this new danger to avoid. Because say what you will about Jesus' opponents, but those brothers knew their Bibles, okay? Those guys studied Scripture. Jesus himself says, hey, you study the Scriptures diligently, 
Like they had like Bible verses on their little notepads and they had Bible verses they were quoting on Facebook and they had, you know, Bible tattoos, bumper stickers. Like they were like Bible people, okay? And he's saying, hey, you study the scriptures diligently. You talk about the Bible a lot. You can quote verses. You know Torah. But you're not coming to me. All those things point you to me, but you won't come to me. So you're, you're missing the point of what it's all about. And he says, what, in verse 39, you think that in the scriptures you have life. We buy into that assumption today. We think that, hey, more Bible knowledge, more memory verses, more Bible information, another Bible study, another Bible study, another Bible study, and that itself is going to lead to salvation and eternal life. If I can just, you know, again, quote the verses and know the content. And Jesus says, you can do all those things and still miss the point. That's really dangerous at, for, for a church like ours, right? Where we, we place a high value on the authority of Scripture. And we, we're a, a Bible-preaching church, and we're a Bible-believing people, and we come to the Scriptures together over and over again. It's possible, especially in a, in a community like this, to, to miss the heart of it and think, well, the Bible itself is the goal rather than the God that Bible points to. See? Saying scriptures aren't an end in themselves. The scriptures are to lead you to relationship with Jesus. And so Bible knowledge, Bible information without relationship with Jesus is missing the point. In another barrier, verse 41, he says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So here's the, the second barrier Jesus points out, and this is kind of the last point for the morning here, is that he's saying, hey, you guys believe the wrong messengers. You see that? He talks about receiving glory from people. Uh, he's talking about essentially people seeking flattery or the praise of men. And he's saying, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but you will accept someone, you see, verse 43, who comes in their own name. So, hey, you'll accept false prophets, uh, people who come in the first century who claim to be the Messiah but weren't, false teachers in the early church. Here Jesus is saying, you're going to reject me and my words despite everything I've just shown you, right? I've talked to John the Baptist and my works and the testimony of the Father and how all the scriptures point to me. He said, look at how all of it points to me. You're going to reject me and my words and instead come and listen to someone who comes in their own name without that authority, without that proven track record, without those witnesses, without that testimony. And for Christians today, right, we could add to that, not only do we have the words of Jesus, the truth of Scripture, the, the testimony of the Father, all this, the miracles, everything Jesus shows us. We then also have uh, 2,000 years of church history, right? Seeing how, how the church and believers for now several thousand years has followed Jesus and gone over and over again to his word. He's saying, you're going to leave all that behind. You're going to reject that and instead accept people who, who come in their own name. You'll accept teachers that have uh, not even a fraction of the credibility, credibility and authority that Jesus has. 
You're going to reject the words of Jesus and instead let your heart and your mind be more shaped by your, your favorite political talk show host. You're going to receive them instead, instead of me. Or you're going to let you know, any old person with a social media account, you know, an Instagram account, kind of influence you and then direct you away from me or make you doubt me or, you know, someone who has an axe to grind with scripture and happens to have an Instagram. You're going to listen to them, but you're not, you're not going to land where I land, or you're, you know, you have a friend who maybe, I don't know, maybe thinks Christianity is too exclusive and wants to say, hey, we need to be more inclusive than Jesus. And all those verses about division and all those verses about him being the only way, that's, that's too narrow. We need to throw that away. And Jesus is saying, really, you're, you're, you're going to toss out what I'm saying about this, my very word, with all these witnesses, with all this authority, and you're going to come land over here where this person is leading you. Church, I, I beg you, listen to the words of Jesus. May we be a people who over and over again come back to Jesus and his word and say, okay, Jesus, what did you say? What did you say? You've spoken on this. Where are you leading us? Where are you leading us? Run to him. Hear his voice. Please don't be swayed by temporary trends, right, modern uh, worldviews that, frankly, in a few years are probably going to be out of vogue anyways, right, come over and over again to the words of Jesus, because he's shown himself to be who he says he is. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your, in your kindness, in your grace, and in your mercy, you've, you've given us these witness testimonies. Jesus, you said in verse 34, you didn't have to do this. He didn't have to lay all this out for us, but verse 34 says you wanted us to be saved. You love us. You're so gracious and kind with us. And so you've tried to help us see and understand that you are who you say you are. So Jesus, we once again put our faith in you. We once again look to you as our Savior and as our King. We pray you lead us forward in great humility, in great obedience, in great love for you and love for our neighbors. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.